From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of Connecting with Walt. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host and producer and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm great. I've got my popcorn out and ready, and I am excited for this episode. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you. Now, do you just put butter on it, or do you put flavoring, or Um, like like cheddar popcorn, or jalapeno-flavored popcorn? I'm pretty much just your standard butter type of person. Lately, when I go to the movies... To try to cut down on the bad stuff, you know, uh, I will sacrifice and just have it plain, which, you know, it's always pre-buttered, so it's not really plain. But, yeah, when I'm at home, I, I have to get the kind that has the movie theater butter in it. I need, I need oh. that extra. But I also do enjoy buying the tins that come with the, the regular popcorn, the caramel corn, and the, the, the cheddar popcorn mm-hmm. as well too so but i usually try to only do that around christmas oh yeah i like caramel corn and i like um kettle corn but um I, yeah i'm just a, i'm a butter popcorn person but i pop my own and then i melt butter and yeah i just love it all <laughs> yeah oh yeah that's my vice is popcorn i'll, I'll sometimes just go to a movie because i want the popcorn <laughs> with extra butter yeah it's it's the greatest excuse ever yeah <laughs> So, well, the reason that we are talking about this is because, you know, Craig and I have frequently talked about some of our favorite Disney animated and live action films, which is why we are always excited when the Turner Classic Movies announces its seasonal treasures from the Disney Vault schedule. And in the early years of the Disney Channel, films and shorts from the Disney Vault were broadcast regularly. Now they were broadcast on the Turner Classic Movie Channel, and perhaps in 2019, they'll be available from Disney's own streaming distribution service. Now, TCM had sponsored the Great Movie Ride at Disney's Hollywood Studios at Walt Disney World starting in 2014, but that contract ended in 2017, and the Great Movie Ride closed on August 13th, 2017, to be reimagined as Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. So, I think we all made an assumption that the TMC Treasures from the Disney Vault series would also end in 2017. So I think everybody was surprised when this spring season was announced. So now, Craig, have you heard any updates about the relationship between the Walt Disney Company and Turner Classic Movies Treasures from the Disney Vault? No, I actually, I I still haven't. I'm in the same bandwagon as everyone else right now where I'm happy that it's coming back and hope it continues but i'm kind of on the fence right now where i'm thinking that like you said once disney's own uh, streaming service starts maybe that is when their their relationship will end up severing but at the same time too i know that uh, you know i i know leonard malton is 
works very closely with TCM, and he's obviously one of the the best Disney experts out there, especially with the animated films and all, all their films, honestly. And a lot of times he, he does enjoy doing the treasures from the Disney vault as well as when he used to do the, the Walt Disney treasures sets mm-hmm. because he's able to also add in the historical perspective for some of the, the shorts that are being shown or the movies that aren't quite uh, adequate for society today. They're just, you know, obviously when there's some racy stuff in there, stuff that was okay at the time that it was being produced, but not anymore. It, it also helps out that he's there to kind of champion it and, and explain those, uh, explain what was happening at the time, why it was relevant back then, but maybe doesn't play as well now. So, while the streaming service could be hosting a lot of these classic movies, cartoons, uh, in some cases, I hope we don't lose out on them because we don't have that extra little bit. Whereas if Disney and TCM still have that relationship, then then hopefully that will keep uh, some lesser seen cartoons and movies, uh, keeping them in in the mindset because there is that host that's pushing for, for those ones. But also the other aspect I see with it too, is keeping it along. Yeah. You know, not everyone has cable. A lot of people are cutting the cord, but it's also a really good advertisement for Disney to still partner with TCM, have these movies be played uh, on a quarterly event basis and then be able to say like, okay, well, also, if you want to watch these movies at any point in time, you can also go to our, our app that we have. So we'll just have to see what happens. I think the ideal world is that Treasures from the Disney Vault continues with all of these historical pieces added on the app. But, you know, I, of course, I want everything. I can't have just a little bit of good stuff. I need to have everything. Yes. Well, I, yeah, I like the historical perspective. So basically, Leonard Bonton's our last hope to have Song of the South. Um, yeah, right. and even then, he he admits that he wants to still continue doing the Walt Disney Treasure tin sets. Like that was his baby. He wants mm-hmm. to still do them. People ask him all the time, "When are there going to be more? When is it going to come out on Blu-ray?" And it's Disney that's holding the stuff back. So yeah, and I don't understand why because they sold very well. Yeah, yeah he. I listened to his podcast and. When they do like question and answers, that's always one of the biggest questions he gets from everyone. When will there be more? And we're just still holding out. Yeah. So, Craig, uh, well, well, in this episode of Connecting with Walt, Craig and I are going to share some information about the March 29th, 2018 Treasures from the Disney Vault films and shorts. Uh, we're not going to critique these films, but... Instead, we're going to share some stories in the hopes it will increase your enjoyment and appreciation of these films. But we may share our our memories and some thoughts about these films and maybe their place in history or their their place in film history. So, Greg, do you want to run through the lineup of Disney treasures we can look forward to viewing on March 29th? Absolutely. Yeah, this is a a pretty big one. So I've I've been a little bit critical in the, the past couple ones uh, of the treasures from the Disney vault, because I feel like a lot of the movies they've been showing are a little bit too mainstream, a little bit too readily available. You know, when you have like Pete's dragon at the overnight hour, that's it's on Blu-ray. It's Mm -hmm. anyone can get it. 
wasn't really happy once it started like that. This lineup seems like it is a complete turnaround in going back to to pulling stuff that might be forgotten or just not seen very often. So at 8 o'clock, it's going to kick off with The Journey of Natty Gan, which was released in 1985. And of course, the times I'm speaking of are in Eastern. Uh, at 10 o'clock p.m., we have Mickey's trailer from 1938. And then that will lead into In Search of the Castaways from 1962, which will lead into Mr. Duck Steps Out at 12 a.m. Uh, from 1940. And that will... Apologize, sir. I don't I've got a frog in my throat. That, that goes into the one and only genuine original family band from 1968. And we have the Golden Touch from 1935 and the Sword in the Rose from 1953 at 2.15. And then at 4.15, the last film of the night will be Rob Roy, The Highland Rogue from 1954. Yeah, and, this is... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just about to say, besides the shorts... I don't think I've seen any of these. Oh, okay. Yeah, these, I've seen a number of them, but it was from way back in yeah. the day. So, uh, but there's a lot of good ones in here. So I can't wait to hear about them. Yes. Well, <laughs> let, let's let's start checking these out in the order of their airing. So, so sitting down all rested and wide-eyed with your bowl of popcorn at 8 p.m., Eastern Time, we start off with The Journey of Natty Gan. This is a 1985 live-action film directed by Jeremy Paul Kagan, and it was originally released on September 27, 1985, and it stars Meredith Salinger as Natty Gan in her film debut, John Cusack as Harry, Ray Wise as Soul Gan, Lainey Kazan as Connie, and Scatman Crothers as Sherman. So some fairly big names in, in their day there. Now, The Journey of Natty Gan is set in 1935, and it tells the story of a 15-year-old tomboy girl, Natty Gan, played by Meredith Salinger, who lives in Chicago, and Natty's widowed father, Saul, is out of work due to the Depression. He manages to obtain a job as a lumberjack in Washington State, and to take the job, he must leave on almost no notice on a company bus from Chicago to Washington. Unable to find Natty before before the bus leaves, he leaves her a letter promising to send her the fare to join him as soon as he has earned it. Meanwhile, he makes arrangements with Connie, the uncaring landlady of their boarding house, so Natty can stay on under Connie's temporary supervision. After overhearing Connie reporting her as an abandoned child, Natty runs away to find her father on her own, embarking on a cross-country journey riding the rails along with other penniless travelers and hobos. Along the way, she saves a wolf dog from a dog-fighting ring, and in return, the dog, whom she calls Wolf, becomes her friend and protector as Natty travels over hill and dale to find her father. She has a brief, innocent romance with another young traveler, Harry, and encounters various obstacles that test her courage, perseverance, and ingenuity. Is Natty united, reunited with her father? Does Harry get a job as a lumberjack and court Natty? Does Wolf stay with Natty or return to his pack? You'll have to watch the film to find out. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yes. Now... 
If you have young children watching this film, you should know that the film depicts Depression-era bleakness and extreme poverty. Natty's mother is dead, as is traditional in Disney films, and her, her father leaves her because he found work across the country, so Natty must fend for herself. The Journey of Natty Gann is rated PG, so parental guidance suggested. Um, Natty is first seen sneaking off to a bathroom to smoke a cigarette with several boys of about her age, and getting into a fistfight with one when he calls her father a commie. So there's quite a bit of violence, including a bloody dogfight and a man who tries to assault Natty when he offers to give her a ride in his truck. And the scarier moments aren't portrayed as graphically as they might be in a modern film. Even when a train derails, Natty walks away with only a few scrapes. But young children watching this film may need some preparation. Now, according to the June 20th, 1984 issue of Variety, the Walt Disney Pictures production, then titled Natty Gann, was set to begin filming in Western Canada on August 1984. On July 4th, 1984, Variety reported that over 300 teenagers were seen by casting director Janet Hiranson for the role of Natty. However, production notes claim 2,000 hopefuls were seen before 14-year-old newcomer Meredith Salinger was chosen. The script was the first original screenplay by Gene Rosenberg, who previously co-wrote The Black Stallion. Principal photography began on August 25, 1984 at the Yaletown Vancouver Studio Center Complex and was scheduled to continue for 12 weeks in British Columbia, Canada. Natty hitches a ride on the former Canadian Pacific Steam Engine number 3716, now in use by the Kettle Valley Steam Railway in Summerlin, British Columbia. And this was also used in The Grey Fox. Uh, scenes in the frontier town were filmed in Coleman, Alberta, near Crow's Nest Pass. The film's title was changed to The Journey of Natty Gann in October 1985. Producer Mike LaBelle had a challenging time getting the small picture made, with its unknown cast and original story. Walt Disney Productions initially agreed to a limited $7.5 million budget with half fees for Mike LaBelle and director Jeremy Kagan. During post-production, Disney underwent a management upheaval when Michael Eisner and Jerry Katzenberg, Jeffrey Katzenberg took charge. The new executives, though, were impressed by the rough cut and agreed to a major promotional campaign. The studio signed actress Salinger to a one-year feature and television deal. Disney's distribution campaign was based on word of mouth from the film festival circuit, followed by a limited six-city release. The picture opened on September 27, 1985 with 200 prints, but soon expanded to 278 theaters. The film has gained universally positive reviews. Review aggregator Rotten Tomatoes gave the film a rating of 100% based on 14 reviews, with a rating average of 7 out of 10. Critics praised the actor's performances and the film's portrayal of Depression-era life, but did criticize its slow pace and level of sentimentality. But, you know, it's a Disney film. The $8 million picture earned a total lifetime domestic gross in the U.S. and Canada of $9.7 million. 
At the Young Artist Awards, Salinger won for Best Leading Young Actress in a Feature Film, and the film itself was nominated for Best Family Motion Picture Drama. Albert Wolski's costume design received an Academy Award nomination. Elmer Bernstein originally scored the picture, having to rewrite much of his material in the process. Ultimately, most of his music was replaced with a new score by James Horner. Hmm. Yeah, see, this was one of those movies that I remember distinctly as walking into uh, our our local Giant Eagle back in, in Butler, Pennsylvania, and going to the video section and seeing, I, I can remember seeing this cover, and mm-hmm. I remember John Cusack on the front of it, and it, it just, it sticks out of my memory, but there was a lot of those ones from the 80s, late 70s, 80s, that even though we always saw them every time we went into the video rental section, it just never actually got them. Uh, I think because I had my favorite ones, like eventually I I watched Flight of the Navigator and then I was given it on VHS because I loved it that much. So it's just one I never got to, but I I looked it up. I didn't even think about this, but uh, when they were making this back in 84 with the release in 85, that was that was still before John Cusack was big. He mm-hmm. his kind of his breakout role, I guess, would be Better Off Dead, and that was also in '85. So it's when they were making this, he truly was unknown. I mean, I Scatman Crothers. I'm sure some people knew of him, but just just wild. So. Yeah, and Lainey Kazan, she was yeah, well known at the exactly. time. Exactly. So, but um, yeah, this was sort of the it was the new era of Disney film that was getting introduced, where it was for a slightly older audience. And, yeah, and um, you know, and, and you know, Michael Eisner ended up getting credit for this new era of film, but it was was really started by Ron Miller, you know, when when he was um, you know running the Walt Disney Studio. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I remember it being a good film. I know I saw it with my children um, when it came out, and when, when, a little later, you know, when it was out on yeah. VHS and on the Disney Channel and all that. And um, it's a very good film, a good adventure film. Yeah, I, very excited for this one. So it shouldn't have taken me this long to see it, but uh, sometimes the best things are worth waiting for. Mm-hmm. Well, and now it's time for a break, you know, and a change of pace at 10 p.m. with the 1938 Mickey Mouse cartoon short, Mickey's Trailer. And Mickey, Donald, and Goofy are taking a cross-country trip in a trailer. Whilst Mickey prepares a breakfast, Donald takes his bath and Goofy drives. It's time for breakfast and Goofy rushes to eat without stopping the car. They entered a restricted area and horrified, Goofy rushes to the driver's seat and accidentally disconnects the car and the trailer, having Mickey and Donald go down a pathway willy-nilly and nearly killed several times. Eventually, they reconnect with the car and are safe, but the clumsy goof never notices. The movie starts at what seems like a small house in a natural setting. Mickey walks out the door and says, Oh boy, what a day! Then he pulls a lever and walks inside. And then uh, the house is converted into a trailer with the natural setting in the shape of a um, giant hand fan revealing to be a city dump, and Goofy's car is released from the side. 
Then Goofy starts driving through the countryside uh, whilst Mickey makes the breakfast. And the breakfast is corn on the cob, baked potatoes, uh, watermelon, coffee, and milk. Meanwhile, Donald can't wake up even when his alarm clock rings and pulls off his blanket. Thanks to a secret um, control board, Mickey manages to rouse him for a machine-assisted bath. Later, the bath is converted into a dining area. And when Mickey rings the bell, as I said, Goofy uh, foolishly leaves the driver's seat while the car and trailer are still in motion. And without stopping for breakfast, after several mishaps during the meal, Goofy notices that no one is in the driver's seat. And as we said, accidentally and unknowingly unhitches the trailer in his panic to resume driving and goes on his way. The trailer rolls downhill on an epic runaway adventure, nearly crashing into a truck and two trains and is, in, is a wreck on the inside. But it's okay on the outside. By the time it's miraculously rehitched to the car, unaware of the dramatic events, Goofy says in the end, well, I brought you down safe and safe sound. And this short features the voices of Walt Disney as Mickey, Clarence Nash as Donald, and Pinto Kolvig as Goofy. It was directed by Ben Sharpstein, um, produced by Walt Disney, and released by RKO Radio Pictures on May 6, 1938. The animators included Louis Schmidt, Johnny Cannon, Don Patterson, Jerry Clyde Geronimi, Tom Palmer, Cy Young, Frenchie D. Trimadon and Edward Ed Love. And this cartoon was later adapted into a comic strip story titled The Unhappy Campers, in which they replaced Donald with Morty and Ferdy Fieldmouse and Pluto. And this was because Donald was not a character in the Mickey Mouse comic strip at the time. And the film was also a part of the Christmas show from All of Us to All of You for the Walt Disney Presents television series. And the film was incorporated into the 1983 film The Outsiders. Sometimes this cartoon cuts out the sequence where Goofy struggles with the corn cob during the part in which he sticks his fork into a light socket and then the resulting shock pops the corn. And in the Swedish broadcast from All of Us to All of You, this scene where Goofy sticks his fort in a light socket is cut, along with most of the trailer's downhill adventure. So, Craig, have you seen Mickey's trailer? Oh, absolutely. This is yeah. one of my favorite animated shorts of all time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's right up there with Lonesome Ghosts and... Uh, I always loved Lambert the Sheepish Lion. That's another another one of my my favorites. But I, I love this one. I don't I, I don't know if I had it on a, a VHS tape that we we probably <clears throat> taped off of Disney Channel at the time, or if it was solely it just got a lot of play on Disney Channel back in the the early '90s. But I I watched this so so much on repeat it is such a, a classic uh, it is it because it like you said it features mickey donald and goofy and they're all they're all in their complete element mickey is kind of your your level-headed character in all this you have donald being classic donald and then goofy just being oblivious and it's all it, it all just works so perfectly mm-hmm. it is a great cartoon 
Yeah, and and it's nonstop action. The animation is so fluid. It, it, there's nonstop gags. Yeah. Uh, it, it's brilliant. It I, it is one of their top um, yeah. Mickey Mouse shorts. Yeah, and like you you said with the animation, this is my favorite era for Mickey. This is where I think the characters like if if I had my choice of what do I want my ideal characters, I don't want the new ones that are out mm. right now that we're going to see in Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. Yeah, I want these late thirties. Mickey, Mickey, and uh, Donald and Goofy. I agree. Yeah, I think that the, these are sort of evermore characters. These ones, and I, I think they would have been just as popular if they were in, if they were included in the in the new attraction rather than what the, what they're putting out. You know, online. Oh. I mean, so. for how long it, I know Walt Disney World, I'm sure when, when you used to travel there, it seemed like the entire 90s into the 2000s, they used to, it used to be that classic Mickey, the, mm-hmm. the late 30s Mickey on all the soaps and toiletries. So I, I collected them all the time. I'm sure I still have some somewhere buried oh away God. at home that I hid. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, following Mickey, Donald, and Goofy's harrowing journey, brace yourself for another with In Search of the Castaways. This is a 1962 live-action film starring Haley Mills and Maurice Chevalier in a tale about a worldwide search for a shipwrecked sea captain. This film was directed by Robert Stevenson from a screenplay by Lowell S. Hawley based upon a Jules Verne's 1868 adventure novel, Captain Grant's Children. And this film was released on December 21st, 1962, and was Haley Mills' third of six for the Disney Studios. Now, uh, the film is a story, um, you know, in company of her younger brother, Robert, who's played by Keith Hampshire, and her elderly yet young at heart friend, Professor Jacques Paganel, who's played by Maurice Chevalier, teenage Mary Grant, Haley Mills, journeys to Glasgow, Scotland to persuade the comically brave Lord Glenarvan, Wilfred Hyde White, to rescue her shipwrecked father, Captain John Grant, who's portrayed by Jack Gwillem. The expedition sets sail and ventures halfway around the world to both South America and New Zealand. The party suffers many assorted perils, including an earthquake, a flood, a fire, an attack by a giant condor, and an erupting volcano. A subplot involves a gunrunner named Thomas Ireton, played by George Sanders, who is a treacherous former crew member of Captain Grant's ship and responsible for his disappearance. Then there's another subplot involving a budding romance between young Mary Grant and Lord... Glenarivan's, however he says his name, handsome and loyal young son, Michael Anderson Jr. Do our heroes survive their treacherous journey and find the shipwrecked Captain Grant? You'll find out after 98 minutes. Now, producer Bill Anderson discovered this obscure Jules Verne story for Disney, and he wanted to mount it as another lavish on-location production as he had done with the very successful Swiss Family Robinson. But Walt wanted to prove to Anderson that it could be filmed completely on a soundstage as he had originally wanted to do with the Swiss Family Robinson. And you might remember that when one of our previous um, Turner Classic Movies Treasures on the Disney Vault episodes when he went into yep. that um, battle exactly. that Walt had with Bill. Now, according to script writer Lowell Hawley, uh, 
Walt originally wanted British actor Charles Lawton to play the role of Lord Glenarvan. Um, Lawton was so what was interested until he learned the role of Professor Professor Paganel would be played by Maurice Chevalier. So I don't know what was going on with Charles Lawton and Maurice Chevalier. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, but uh, Charles Lawton dropped out. So Wilfred Hyde White was yeah. cast in the role. He's another great uh, yeah. character actor. Maybe one day we'll get FX to make a, a feud series about... Marie Chevalier and Charles Lawton. <laughs> That's good. There, there's your screenplay, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> no. um, now, Disney's studio publicity materials were enthusiastic about the huge sets that had to be created at Pinewood Studios in England for several of the scenes, including a 150-foot replica of the first ocean-going steam yacht, a p- partial reproductions of the ports of Glasgow, Scotland, and Melbourne, Australia, a New Zealand Maori village and stockade, a simulated live volcano, and a faithful copy of a 150-foot South American ombu tree. It was reported that the studio had 600 ombu branches flowing in from the Argentine pampas, but the film's British art director, Michael Stringer, said the leaves were really imported from Italy, and the actual tree was mostly made of fiberglass, which they had cast from actual oak tree branches, which, which was an enormous job. Now, Peter Ellenshaw and Albert Whitlock created around 900 matte paintings, and there were extensive shots using miniatures. And Ellenshaw spent months in the special effects cage with miniature sets shooting the sequence where Marie Chevalier, Haley Mills, and others sled down the Andes on a giant rock that breaks off a cliff after an earthquake. Michael Stringer talked about a number of elaborate special effects in the films. He said that film had as many special effects in it as any Spielberg picture does today, I should think. Construction manager Gus Walker helped devise how to stage the earthquake sequence where the ground had split in two. And according to Stringer, we had bits of the set on small tractors which had stagehands used to which the stagehands used to use for pulling sets around. So we built bits of the earth, about 10 foot square sections on it, on these little tractors which drove apart. Stringer also talked about the ombu tree sequence, which featured a 400-pound alligator from the Florida Everglades named Alfred and a live jaguar roaming the branches of the tree. So we had to build this whole ombu tree stage set in a cage, and within this giant cage was another cage with a camera crew in it, which was moved from place to place within the set. According to Disney publicists, the Jaguar was a two-year-old named Samantha. And they wrote, On her day before the cameras, Samantha lunched on 10 pounds of raw meat and one uncooked chicken, then leapt into the ombu to do her stuff. She stalked gracefully up to the camera, peered menacingly to the right and left, then emitted an earth-shattering roar that would make Leo the lion's best sound like a cat's meow. (laughs) That's a nice little dig at MGM there. Yeah, I think that was cute. Um, Stringer said the big reason for filming at Pinewood Studios was because it had the large water tank that they needed for making model shots, a water spout, and other special effects. 
To create the water spout, Gus Walker rigged six hose pipes on a crane pointing downward, then reversed the film so it went up instead of down, and the actors were on wires being sucked up in this water spout. And for this sequence where the ombu tree catches fire, Stringer said the fiberglass tree on the soundstage had to be replaced with film of an actual tree being burned. We had to burn a big oak tree on a farmer's land. We had to buy the tree and burn it one night. Um, Michael Stringer was impressed with Walt's attention to detail during the filming. One day, whilst watching the rough footage from the day's shoot, Walt pointed out that one line of dialogue was missing. Walt sent for the script, and he was right. The sequence had to be reshot, which caused some consternation, but indicated to all that Walt knew the script by heart. And that is just something that is... Phenomenal. I, mean, I know. How many people these days that didn't actually write it would be able to just pick up on that? It's another thing that made him a genius. I know, especially when you think of everything that was going on at the studio at the time. Yeah. Especially what when I'm going to talk about next with the Sherman Brothers. Yes. Um, the, the Sherman Brothers composed several songs for this film, including Castaway, Merci Beaucoup, Let's Climb, or Grip-Ons, and Enjoy It, with an orchestral arrangement of Castaway serving as the film's overture. Now, the reason I said what I said about what Walt was dealing with this first assignment came at a very good time for the boys. They had just survived a visit from the author of the Mary Poppins series of books, P.L. Travers, who left the studio without committing to Disney making a film from the books. They were feeling down because they had no idea if Mary Poppins would be made. Robert Sherman said, Walt wanted to get us out of our doldrums. He knew that 30 years prior, our father had written a song for Maurice Chevalier called Living in the Sunlight. So he said, how would you like to write a song for Maurice Chevalier? We said we'd love it. That sort of picked us up. In Search of the Castaways was a commercial success. It grossed $18,415,385 domestic earnings and $5 million in U.S. theater rentals. The worldwide box office, the film earned $21,745,500. In the United States, it was the third highest grossing film of 1962. Bosley Crowther in the New York Times said the film was a good, good for children of all ages, between 6 and 12, that is. <laughs> it is, as we say, a whopping fable, more gimmicky than imaginative, but it doesn't lack for lively melodrama that is more innocent and wholesome than much of the stuff the children see these days on television. In Search of the Castaways was one of the 12 most popular movies at the British box office in 1963. The film placed third in the 1963 Golden Laurel Top Male Musical performance for Maurice Chevalier and was nominated for the Golden Laurel Top Action Drama. So, so Craig, I, I, I think you're going to see a difference between um, the quality of, of sort of the sets and staging of between Swiss Family Robinson and In Search of the Castaways. Yeah, I actually have seen this. So okay. I it just the name wasn't dawning on me 
right away, but is the more we started talking about it just instantly came back and then once we got to the music, then it just as soon as we got to enjoy it, that yes. was like yep, yep, I I can remember watching this. So when they're uh, singing it in the tree making breakfast. <laughs> yeah, I it's a great song. Uh mm-hmm. it, I I have good memories of this. I can't uh, like uh, you know, it's not 100% clear like like I could basically outline the entire plot of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or Swiss Family Robinson uh, without having to even look at a piece of paper but i'm excited to get reacquainted with this and i I like that history with it too i did not realize that al sherman wrote uh living in the sunlight i i only know the tiny tim version of it from the the (laughs) 60s or 70s i I just assumed that he wrote that song yeah that's wild yeah, and uh, yeah, this, this is a fun film. I remember seeing this, and I watched it, you know, with our children when it came out on the VHS tape. I think we still have the tape, and and I have the DVD when it came out on that years ago. Uh, this is just a fun adventure. It's a little complex. After all, you're wondering why are they going there, <laughs> but otherwise, uh, it's just fun. Yeah, so, anytime Haley Mills is on screen, mm-hmm. always good. Yeah, and she has she has good chemistry with everybody, uh, you know, on the you know on the set, mm-hmm. and you know it shows on the film, too. Yeah. So I think I think this is the film where she turns sixteen, and and they had a, a lot of publicity photos yeah. for that, and they, and they I think the Disney Studio presented her with a big cake yeah. and everything. I, I'm honestly so. surprised that this isn't kicking off the night. I I think that this would have been a better choice. Hmm. to to really start it off but that's just my opinion yeah yeah maybe yeah sometimes sometimes the uh, progression of films that they choose on tcm makes sense to me uh this one uh, it's only near the the last half that it makes sense to me so anyway well at the stroke of midnight it's time to get all gussied up for mr duck steps out this is a donald duck cartoon that was released on june 7th 1940 what is noteworthy about this short is it featured the debut of daisy duck now donald visits the house of his new love interest for their first known date at first, Daisy acts shy and has her back turned to her visitor, but Donald soon, soon notices her tail feathers taking the form of a hand and signaling for him to come closer. Ah, oh, there's that little come-hither look that I guess ducks give to each other. But their time alone is soon interrupted by Huey, Dewey, and Louie, who have followed their uncle and compete with him for the attention of Daisy. Uncle and nephews take turns dancing the jitterbug with her whilst trying to get rid of each other. In their final effort, the three younger ducks feed their uncle a hot ear of popcorn. The popping is completed inside of Donald, who continues to move wildly around the house whilst maintaining the appearance of dancing. The short ends with an impressed Daisy showering her new boyfriend with red kisses. The director for this short is Jack King. The assistant director is Bob Newman. Producer is Walt Disney, and it was written by Carl Banks. The voices were provided 
provided by Clarence Ducky Nash, and the animators included Leslie James or Les Clark, Paul Allen, Phil Duncan, Ken Peterson, Eddie Strickland, Emery Hawkins, Larry Clemens, Don Towsley, Judge Whitaker, Lee Morehouse, Rex Cox, Ray Patton, Volus Jones, Kenneth Ken Muse, Dick Lundy, Jim Armstrong, and the layouts were by Bill Herwig. And Donald was the studio's big star in 1939, and his popularity continued through the 1940s. And this short stands out amongst other Donald shorts of the period for its use of modern music and surreal situations throughout. And after this short, the idea of a permanent love interest for Donald was firmly established. However, Daisy did not appear as regularly as Donald. And this short had two working titles, Donald's Date and Donald in the Groove. And as seen in storyboard sketches for the short that you can see on the chronological Donald DVD, Donald was originally going to wear his traditional sailor suit, but in the final cartoon, his clothes were changed to more of a city slickers style. One of the dancers brought in as reference for Donald and Daisy's jitterbug was Virginia Davis, who as a young girl appeared in the Alice comedies of the 1920s. And this marks the only time Clarence Nash provided Daisy's voice. So have you uh, have you jitterbugged to Mr. Duck's, Duck's <laughs> out, Craig? I <laughs> don't think I've ever jitterbugged to it. So it, it's been a while <laughs> since I have watched this. Uh, I'll be just flat out honest. I am not a huge Daisy fan. Oh, really? She's yeah, never, never really worked for me. It's the I know she doesn't have it in every cartoon, but the attitude or arrogance about her—it's just I, I've never, never really enjoyed her as a character. So mm-hmm. uh, that's part of why I avoid it. And plus, I just. I need to go through another binge feed, going through my uh, Disney Disney Treasures tins and start going all through them and and watch more. But yeah, this is this is one that I've seen a handful of times when I'll I'll watch those. But it's it's just another one for me. Nothing nothing I, super special. I I like this one because of the creativity of the animation, because of some of the surreal situations when Donald is doing his popcorn jitterbug dancing, Mm -hmm. that you really see the animators breaking out of traditional animation and trying some new techniques that Walt was always encouraging them to do. So I I think that's one of the most interesting things about this film because it's only 1940 yeah and and yeah. and you know you you see them stretching their creativity uh you know in this you know they did it with dumbo you know that's around the same era yeah as this and and, and we're going to see it progress you know because walt really wanted them to think outside of traditional animation yeah i'll have to pay a little bit more attention to that when i watch this one yeah, but I agree that they were a little inconsistent, I think, over the years with Daisy's personality. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think they had a hard time nailing her down. And then I think towards the end, she she became closer to Minnie's personality. Yeah. And, um, but sometimes she was sultry, sometimes she was flirty, you know, sometimes she was just sweet. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it just depended. And no other character really had that problem. Everyone mm-hmm. else had a, a distinct characteristic about them. And Daisy's just all over the place. And 
never never cared for but yeah yeah so now this donald duck jazz era short is a perfect introduction for the one and only genuine original family band this is a 1968 musical based on a biography by laura bauer van nuys it's directed by michael o'herlihy with original music and lyrics by the sherman brothers it was one of the last films personally produced by walt disney and it's set against the backdrop of the 1888 presidential election. So the film portrays the musically talented Bauer family, American pioneers who settle in the Dakota Territory. And this is really a, a who's who of classic Disney uh, studio actors. Um, it includes Walter Brennan as um, Rensselaer Bauer, um, Buddy Ebsen as Calvin Bauer, John Davidson as Joe Cowder, uh, Leslie Ann Warren as Alice Bauer, Janet Blair as Katie Bauer, Kurt Russell as Sidney Bauer, Steve Harmon as Ernie Stubbins, Richard Deacon as Charlie Wren, and Wally Cox as Wampler. Um, the film reunited Leslie Ann Warren and John Davidson as the romantic leads in a Disney musical. They had previously been paired in The Happiest Millionaire. Goldie Hawn's first film credit was the one and only genuine originally original family band playing a giggly girl. In a Hollywood example of One Degree of Separation, also featured in the cast was a young Kurt Russell, and 16 years later, the two would co-star in the film Swing Shift and become an item. I think we're going to have to pretend, though, that it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for this movie. Oh, uh, absolutely. I'm <laughs> sure he was smitten by her. Yeah. He, was a, he was a bit young when this film came yeah. out. Um, now... This film, the Bauer family petitions the Democratic National Committee to sing a rally song for <clears throat> President Grover Cleveland at the party's 1888 convention. And those of you who listened to our episode last week on the history of the Hall of Presidents know that Craig was very clever in dressing up as his favorite president, Grover Cleveland, for that episode to get us yeah. prepared for this. And keeping it all together. You are. You are. So on the urging of Joe Carter, a journalist and suitor to the eldest Bauer daughter, Alice, the family decides instead to move to the Dakota Territory. There, Grandpa Bauer, a staunch Democrat, causes trouble with his pro-Cleveland sentiments. The Dakota residents are overwhelmingly Republican and hope to get the territory admitted as two states, North and South Dakota rather than one, so as to send four Republican senators to Washington rather than two. Grandpa's actions results in family strife, including nearly costing Alice her position as the town's new school teacher. The budding romance between Joe and Alice also suffers, and in the end, more ballots are cast for Cleveland, but Republican nominee Benjamin Harrison nonetheless wins the presidency, the first time in the nation's history that the Electoral College reverses the popular vote. Before he leaves office, Cleveland grants statehood to the two Dakotas, along with two Democrat voting territories, evening the gains for both parties. Will the Dakotans and the feuding young couple be able to live together in peace? We'll have to watch the film to find out. Yeah, what, a, what a story that just 
means more today than any other time. <laughs> really, it does. Um, now, this was originally planned as a two-part television show titled The Family Band, and the initial treatment was written by Lowell Hawley in 1963. And the project was based on the book by Laura Bauer Van Nuys. The memoir by Van Nuys, the youngest of the Bauer children, described her family's brass band and their journey out to Missouri and their frontier life in the Black Hills. Now, after the success of Mary Poppins, Walt Disney decided to turn the project into a major screen musical. Walt Disney asked the Sherman brothers for their help on the project, feeling the story was too flat. The Shermans wrote the song, the one and only genuine original family band, which was ultimately used as the title of the motion picture. After hearing the song, Disney decided to add more songs to the film and turn it into a musical. And the Sherman Brothers wrote 11 songs for the film, though Robert reportedly did so under protest, believing the subject matter too mundane to be made into a feature-length musical film. Now, a number of the songs uh, you, you might hear on Main Street USA, um, there's the one and only genuine original family band. The film opens with Grandpa conducting all ten members of the Bauer Band, each playing a different musical instrument, practicing in their barn. The family dances amongst the animals and hay, boasting of their unique talents and versatility. In The Happiest Girl Alive, Alice expresses her intense emotions over receiving her latest letter from suitor Joe Carter. Let's put it over with Grover. The Bowers performed this Grover Cleveland campaign song to a representative from the Democratic National Committee. Ten Feet Off the Ground, um, you've all probably heard without realizing it, walking mm -hmm. down Main Street. Ecstatic at the prospect of performing at the National Convention, the family band engages in an impromptu celebration. They sing about the feeling which only music can bestow figuratively, lifting them ten feet off the ground. This is one of two songs from the film covered by Louis Armstrong later in 1968. Yeah, and this was actually, uh, if you didn't put that in, that's what I was going to mention is that's actually how I first heard this song was on the, uh, the Satchmo Sings Disney. It's a mm -hmm. great, great album if you've never heard it before. So find yeah. it on Spotify or Apple Music. Just uh, track down a copy of it. It is excellent. It is excellent. It, and it's it's still out there, still available. Oh, yeah, yeah, I have the CD. Yeah, no, it's 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 readily available out there for streaming or or purchasing, and I highly recommend that. That's one of my uh, of the Disney albums that are you know not about parks related directly. Between that and then the Dave Brubeck uh, album with all mm -hmm. Disney songs, those those are like my two go tos. I love the infusion of jazz and Disney together. Now, you know that, that Dave Diggs Disney, they released a two-CD version of it. Where yeah. It's the mono version and then the stereo version with a couple extra songs. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. I, I, I frequent that many times. Did not <laughs> yeah. know about it. Not to like go completely off tangent. Did not even know about it until Saving Mr. Banks when, oh, okay. they, use, um, when they use one of the tracks from it in that movie. And that's like, well... What? Jazz musicians at one point in time 
actually played Disney songs and then oh, yeah. just went from there and uh, <laughs> eventually led me to Glenn Miller doing When You Wish Upon the Star and mm-hmm. it, oh, it just keeps it's a wormhole but I'll yeah, let you go on lot. with the music <laughs> <laughs> now um, Dakota is when Joe Carter entices local Missouri families singing about the marvels of the Dakota territory now the interesting thing is Dakota is similar in style to the title song of the Oklahoma stage musical and this was once considered as a candidate for the state song for South Dakota now about time this is another fairly well-known song as well Joe Carter expresses his devotion to Alice telling her it's about time they were engaged she responds in kind and the two sing this duet this song was also covered by Louis Armstrong and was later featured in the 2005 film Bewitched (laughs) <laughs> not your favorite? Eh, not quite, you know. Not not really Will Ferrell or, or Nicole Kidman at their finest. But yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> drummond, drummond, drummond. Grandpa Bauer recounts the tale of a young drummer boy during the Civil War, inspiring all the children in the schoolhouse that they too can stand their ground and make a difference. West of the wide Missouri, on election night, the locals dance and celebrate their part in American expansionism. West of the wide Missouri. Oh, Benjamin Harrison, the Republicans in town have their own campaign song. They sing their praise for Benjamin Harrison, who is far beyond comparison. The shooting script for the film was completed by December 1966, and the major roles had been cast. And Bing Crosby would portray the lead, Calvin Bauer. The role had been tailored for him. Everything was set for the film to go into production. Of course, you'll note that I didn't mention Bibbing Crosby's name in the cast. Well, then Walt Disney unexpectedly passed away, and everything began to go wrong. Bing Crosby increased his salary demands and was dropped from the film. Buddy Ebsen was cast to replace him, but his vocal range could not handle Cosby's main song, Western. Then arguing over the script began, and many revisions were made to the detriment of the film. Scenes that added depth to the characters were cut. Sequences developing the relationship between Calvin and Katie Bauer were removed. Uh, The film premiered at Radio City Music Hall in New York City, originally intended to run 156 minutes. The Music Hall requested 20 minutes of cuts. Disney responded by cutting the film to 110 minutes. Amongst the cuts were Western, one of the few serious songs in the film, sung by Calvin, and I Couldn't Have Dreamed It Better, sung by Katie. The Sherman Brothers and producer Bill Anderson objected, but the studio heads told them the cuts would be just for the music hall's engagement. And Robert B. Sherman pointed out the music hall is where New York film critics screen these films, arguing that the cuts weaken the character's dramatic motivation. He also predicted that those cuts would result in negative reviews. Radio City Music Hall got its way, and the 110-minute version is the only one that ever saw a release. Sherman's predictions came true when the New York Times panned the film after seeing it at the Music Hall. Bringing in $2,250,000 in rentals, it was never reissued to theaters. Instead, it aired on The Wonderful World of Disney in two parts on January 23rd and January 30th, 1972. 
So far, Disney has made no attempt at a reconstruction of the originally intended cut, but sheet music of the two cut songs was included in the book Disney's Lost Chords, Volume 2. So, Craig, have you seen uh, the family band? Uh, No, this is one that I definitely still have yet to see. And uh, at least for this viewing, I I am happy that it got cut down to 110 minutes, even if it (laughs) affected it in a negative way. I... You know, I, I've watched plenty of long movies. I watch Gone with the Wind regularly, and that's that's a chore to get through. But I, I have to be honest, too. It's one of the biggest criticisms I hear from people about Mary Poppins, which I will never understand because I think it's perfect. But people complain about the length. And hmm. so, oh, I can't, it, you know, while this sounds interesting to me and I'm excited to finally watch it. I can't imagine having to sit through two hours and 36 minutes of this. That is just, that's a long, long time. That is a long time, especially for this film. I mean, it is enjoyable, but it it does go long. Yeah. Uh, definitely. So. But I'm excited to see the cast. So I love mm-hmm. Buddy Epson, obviously, Kurt Russell, a lot of the Disney regulars that you mentioned. So uh, yeah. this will be a fun one. The acting is good. The sets are good. Costumes are great. You know, so it's it's all well done. Yeah. yeah. They just jinx themselves. Yeah. So start your morning at 2.15 a.m. with The Golden Touch, which is a silly symphony short telling a version of the story of King Midas. It was released on March 22, 1935, and was distributed by United Artists. This was the last short Walt Disney would direct himself. So it was directed by Walt Disney, produced by Walt Disney. The story was by Albert Herter. Um, the, it was voiced by Billy Butcher. The music was by Frank Churchill. Uh, he did the the counting song with lyrics by Larry Morey. The animation was by Norm Ferguson and Freddie Moore. Now, in this story, King Midas never gets enough of gold and wishes that everything he touched would turn to gold. One day, an elf named Goldie appears in front of him and offers him the golden touch and demonstrates its magical power by turning his cat to gold, then claps his hands and it changes back, but warns him that it's a curse. Midas, however, derides this, exclaiming, Fiddlesticks, give me gold, not advice. And Goldie gives him the golden touch. I gave the advice, now I give thee gold. At first, Midas is happy about it. He turns many things in his garden to gold. He talks to himself in his mirror about turning the earth and then the universe to gold. His reflection applauds to him. Then he finds out he can't eat and drink anymore. Is the richest king in all the world to starve to death? (laughs) Well, it it appears so. Um, Deprived of his favorite meal and fear of starvation, he even hallucinates himself in a golden skeleton form in his mirror. Then as he runs away from this horrifying image, he sees his shadow on the wall morph into the golden grim reaper. After which a terrified Midas flees back to his counting room. He summons the elf and agrees to surrender everything he owns. Finally, he exchanges the golden touch in his castle for a hamburger with onions. 
Now, Norm Ferguson animated Midas, the birds, cat, and skeleton, and Fred Moore animated Goldie, a scene with Midas enjoying his new power, cats, birds, and the Grim Reaper. Norm Ferguson animated Midas, and Freddie Moore animated Goldie, so Moore took over animating a long sequence of um, Midas cavorting around the castle, enjoying his new power because... um, um, Goldie had more uh, more scenes. So anyway, then um, Midas did. So or Midas had more scenes than Goldie. So more helped out a bit. So anyway, working titles for this short were um, King Midas and King Midas and the Golden Touch. And the Golden Touch was an attempt by Walt Disney to direct a cartoon, which he hadn't done for five years. Disney had been criticizing his cartoon directors and decided to direct the cartoon himself. He was dissatisfied with the result and forbade his workers to talk about it. Despite being an infamous disappointment, the film was included with the first Silly Symphonies DVD collection, as well as Walt Disney's Timeless Tales Wave 2, Volume 3 in 2006. So, have you seen this one, Craig? Yeah, of course. Uh, Mm -hmm. Definitely. uh, A bunch of times. But that's the funny part. I didn't realize that it was considered a, a disappointment. So just because I have seen it so much and it's been released so many times. So it, it kind of takes me back that, thinking that uh, now maybe it's not as good as I, I once thought it would. But yeah, the the food portions are always uh, my favorite. So mm-hmm. it's it, it's a good one. I love all the silly symphonies, though. I know they're not for everyone. Some people want to stick with the Fab Five and see Mickey. But I, I'm a big fan of silly symphonies. Oh, I am too, and it was always their testing ground to try new, new animation and special effects and hone their skills. Yeah, so they were important. Um, yeah, I didn't think this one was so bad. I, I never really understood why it was. Uh, I don't know why Walt and, and gang thought it, it was a disappointment. Well, so. it's we will speculate that on our next "What Would Walt Think" episode that yes. we do. Now, the story of King Midas starts off the rest of our royal entourage, beginning with the sword and the rose. And this is a um, family and adventure film produced by Pierce Pierce, Purse Pierce, and Walt Disney. And the second film for Disney, created by Ken Anakin. Uh, The film features the story of Mary Tudor, a younger sister of Henry VIII of England. Now, this is based on the 1898 novel When Knighthood Was in Flower by Charles Major, and it was originally made into a motion picture in 1908 and again in 1922. The 1953 Disney version was adapted for the screen by Lawrence Edward Watkin and was released by RKO Radio Pictures on July 23, 1953. The film was shot at Denham Film Studios and was the third and most elaborate of Walt Disney's British productions after Treasure Island in 1950 and the story of Robin Hood and his Merry Men in 1952. Um, The cast includes Mary Tudor, who is played by our favorite suffragette from Mary Poppins, Glynis Johns. King Henry VIII is James Robertson Justice. Charles Brandon is uh, the first Duke of Suffolk, is played by Richard Todd. Duke of Buckingham is Michael Goff, and Lady Margaret is Jane Barrett. 
Now, in this story, Mary Tudor falls in love with a new arrival to court, Charles Brandon. She convinces her brother, King Henry VIII, to make him captain of the guard. Meanwhile, Henry is determined to marry her off to the aging King Louis XII of France as part of a peace agreement. Mary's longtime suitor, the Duke of Buckingham, takes a dislike to Charles as he is a commoner, and the Duke wants Mary for himself. However, troubled by his feelings for the princess, Brandon resigns and decides to sail to the New World. Against the advice of her lady-in-waiting, Lady Margaret, Mary dresses up like a boy and follows Brandon to Bristol. Henry's men find them and throw Brandon in the Tower of London. King Henry agrees to spare his life if Mary will marry King Louis and tells her that when Louis dies, she is free to marry whomever she wants. Meanwhile, Mary asks the Duke of Buckingham for help, but but he only pretends to help Brandon escape from the tower, really planning to have him killed whilst escaping. The Duke thinks he is drowned in the Thames, but he survives. Mary marries King Louis and encourages him to drink to excess and be active so that his already deteriorating health worsens. His heir Francis makes it clear that he will not return Mary to England after the king's death, but keep her for himself. When she goes to him for help, the Duke of Buckingham tells Lady Margaret that Brandon is dead and decides to go rescue Mary himself. Lady Margaret discovers that Brandon is alive, and learning of the Duke's treachery, they hurry back to France. Louis dies, and the Duke of Buckingham arrives in France to bring Mary back to England. He tells her that Brandon is dead and tries to force her to marry him. Charles arrives in time, rescues her, and kills the Duke. Mary and Brandon are married and remind Henry of his promise to let her pick her second husband. He forgives them and makes Charles the Duke of Suffolk. Wow. Isn't this a complicated story? This sounds like you're just your average everyday story that you hear about everyone. I know, I know. And (laughs) so it's just a a day in the life of the Tudor family. Yeah, they have the best stories. Yes. Uh, Yeah, and that didn't always come to happy endings, though. (laughs) No. At the end of 1948, funds from the Walt Disney Studios straight was stranded in foreign countries, including the United Kingdom, and for the Disney Studios, it exceeded $8.5 million. So Walt decided to create a studio in Britain called Walt Disney British Films Limited, or Walt Disney British Productions Limited, in association with RKO Pictures. And he started production of Treasure Island in 1950. And with the success of Robin Hood and His Merry Men in 1952, Um, Disney wanted to keep that production team for another film. So he chose The Sword in the Rose. And like I said, it was inspired by the 1898 novel When Knighthood Was in Flower. And this team that Walt liked consisted of the director, Ken Anakin, producer Douglas Pierce, writer Lawrence Edward Watkin, and the artistic director, Carmen Dillon. At the beginning of production, Anakin and Dylan went to Walt Disney Studio in Burbank to develop the script and set the stage with storyboards, um, a technique used by Anakin on the production of Robin Hood. And during this step, each time a batch of storyboards was finished, it was presented to Walt Disney, who commented and brought his personal touch. And Anakin was granted great freedom with the dialogue. 
And Walt Disney came to oversee the production of the film in the United Kingdom from June to September 1952. And the team spent several months researching period details to make the film more realistic. And working in pre-production had helped reduce the need for natural settings in favor of studio sets. Um, the lavish sets were designed by Carmen Dillon, who Anakin said was probably one of the finest historical style art directors in the world. She had a great knowledge of everything, costumes, props, etc. We would set the whole thing out and she would come in and work up the best way of how she could do it. Peter Ellenshaw painted sets for 62 different scenes in total. According to Leonard Malton, Ellenshaw's work was such that it is sometimes impossible to tell where the painting ends and reality begins. Peter Ellenshaw's work on the sets resulted in Walt giving him a lifetime contract with the Disney studio. Now, like Treasure Island, The Sword in the Rose was hit by labor troubles during production. The British Electricians Union decided to strike by initiating work stoppages three or four times a day. And Anakin recalled, you never knew when they were going to pull the circuit breakers. You'd be in the middle of a scene like the sword sequence and they'd pull the breakers and everything went black. And those were the conditions that the picture was made under. The shop steward would pass me and say, you don't know when we're going to pull the breakers, do you? We suffered more because it was thought Disney has a lot of money. He needs to go on with this picture because it's his studio's biggest picture. If we do this, Disney will squeal and it will cause the British studios to relent. But of course, Disney didn't squeal. I, I watched an interview with Glynis Johns uh, talking about her time with Sword and Rose, and mm -hmm. she said this was one of her favorite films that oh, she wow. ever worked on. And Michael Todd said the same thing in an interview. Um, she talked about how they had six months of pre-production where she just learned the dances and the sword scenes. And she said never has she been in a film where they've allowed that much time. But she talked about one of these times when the circuit breakers were filled and they were in a water tank um, fighting on the soundstage. Oh, my goodness. I guess having a sword fight. And then suddenly the whole soundstage went pitch black. Oh, gosh. And the, um, So they all just froze and the director is just telling them, stay calm, stay calm, we'll take care of it. So they all just stood there as, as he went and searched for the um, circuit breakers to switch them back on. Oh, man. I, <laughs> yeah. You know what, though? Just, I can understand why people would enjoy filming it. I don't. I don't know if I'll enjoy watching it, but the the idea of it does sound like it could be a lot of fun. The, the visually, this is beautiful. Yeah. It's absolutely stunning. This film, and um, they felt that the the actor's depiction of King Henry VIII. Many felt it was one of the best ever done. Wow, high praise. So, um, yeah. Now, but there are many historical inaccuracies in the film. Um, Charles Brandon was actually a childhood friend of King Henry and not a newcomer to court, as is depicted in the film. He had already received the title of Duke from Henry in 1514. Uh, also, the couple's aborted attempt to sail to the New World never happened. The earliest serious English attempts at North American colonization would only occur under Queen Elizabeth I some 50 years later. It was Brandon, not 
the Duke of Buckingham, who escorted Mary back to England after the death of Louis. The Duke's involvement is purely fictitious, and his wife Eleanor Percy is eliminated entirely from the story. King Henry is portrayed as a middle-aged and corpulent figure, although at the time he was only 23. And his wife Catherine of Aragon is also shown as a brunette, although she was a redhead. This film was received with little enthusiasm in the United Kingdom, mainly because of its historical inaccuracies, despite reviews from the Times that said that Mary Tudor had remarkably alive moments and James Roberts' Justice as King Henry had a royal air. In the United States, the New York Times reviewed the film as a time-consuming tangle of mild satisfaction. Despite these criticisms, the team responsible for the film was reassembled for another film, Rob Roy, The Highland Rogue. The film's budget exceeded that of Robin Hood and His Merry Men, but it earned only $2.5 million. The film disappointed at the U.S. box office, but did better in other countries. However, the relative failure of this and Rob Roy, The Highland Rogue, caused Walt Disney to become less enthusiastic about costume films. In 1956, it was broadcast on the Disneyland television show in two parts under the original book title. There are no children in the cast of The Sword and the Rose, and the script is adult in its approach. Some at the studio wanted to market the film as the first Disney studio release for grown-ups. The idea was quickly disapproved by Walt. As he told a reporter from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, all my films are for grown-ups. Some people don't ever grow up and some are old the day they are born. But most of us retain a love for fantasy and heroic adventure to the longest day we live. There are th- These are the people we make movies for, and I don't care how old they are. Yeah, that sounds very similar to Jim Henson's standpoint. You know, he... Mm-hmm got very frustrated throughout his career that people would always label Muppets as just puppets for kids when he was always trying to make it for adults. But at the end of the day, they're puppets, so kids are going to like them too, but mostly for adults. So interesting to hear that two geniuses both had the exact same mindset when it came to creating entertainment. Absolutely, and that's why they were both so successful. Yep. And and their work lives on to this day. Yeah, it is, <laughs> even though Disney wants to stomp out the Muppets. Yeah, and even though they're in Liberty Square. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so, anyway, but, you know, the, the, I'm someone that likes long, long stories. Uh, I, I love long novels. I love historical novels, mm-hmm. and I love historical films. I, I remember enjoying this film, and um, but this film is a feast for the eyes. Every dollar that went into producing this film is on the screen. And uh, the acting is superb. Um, you, you, seeing a young Glynis John is delightful and um and you she she's a different you see a different side of her acting uh-huh. than we do in Mary Poppins and and you see why she was regarded as such a great um star you know in the United Kingdom um in this film so i uh, i think folks are going to enjoy this film 
I you know. I honestly have a lot of high hopes for it, and I, I mean that sincerely. So a lot of times, these ones that are shown later at night, uh, especially that are these kind of costume uh, style pieces, I, I end up enjoying them. Like the mm-hmm. the one that caught me by surprise was way back in one of the I think it was the second round when they showed the the fighting prince of Donegal. Like mm-hmm. I did not think I was going to like that, and then ended up just really enjoying it. So I I always go into these with a open mind, even though I like to make some jokes about it beforehand. So I, I think I will come away enjoying this one. Yeah, I think you will too. So Now at 4.15 a.m., we travel across the United Kingdom from London to Scotland for Rob Roy, the Highland Rogue. And this was Walt Disney Studios' fourth live-action film. It is directed by Harold French and produced by Perce Pierce and Walt Disney. This film is about Robert Roy McGregor. And it is also the final Disney film released through RKO Radio Pictures. Rob Roy was shot on location near Aberfoyle, Scotland. Now, in this story, it's in Scotland after the 1715 defeat of the clans. One of the Highland leaders, Rob Roy McGregor, escapes, has lots of adventures, gets married, and eventually becomes enough of a nuisance to George I to be outlawed and hunted by the English. Uh, Rob Roy leads his McGregor clansmen against King George I's forces, commanded by the Scottish Duke of Argyle. Whilst determined to establish order in the Highlands, Argyle is sympathetic to the Bonnie Blue Bonnets, whom he is fighting, even refusing to unleash German mercenaries against them. A final charge by royal dragoons scatters the clansmen, but Honor appears satisfied, and Rob Roy returns to his village to wed his beloved Helen. Uh, The wedding uh, celebrations are interrupted by Fencibles, the private army of the Duke of Montrose, who has been appointed as the King's Secretary of State for Scotland and who lacks Argyle's regard for the Highlanders. All clans involved in the Rising of 1715 are pardoned, except for the MacGregors. Rob Roy is arrested and the clan McGregor is deprived of the right to use its name. Rob Roy escapes, leaping a waterfall, and subsequently leads McGregor opposition to the increasingly repressive regime imposed by Montrose through his agent Killern. A fort is stormed by the clan and its garrison of English soldiers taken prisoner. The Duke of Argyle goes to King George to plead the case for leniency for the clan MacGregor, who have been forced into rebellion. At a crucial point, Rob Roy appears at the royal court, heralded by a piper. Rob Roy's self-evident qualities quickly convince the king to pardon him and his clan. After an exchange of compliments, Rob Roy, you are a great rogue, and you, sire, are a great king. The MacGregor returns to his people and his wife. You throw in a uh, throw in a little sex and violence, and it sounds like this could be made today. Yeah, really, really. And the cast includes Richard Todd as Rob Roy McGregor, Glennis Johns as Helen Mary McPherson McGregor, James Robertson Justice as Duke Campbell of Argyle, and Michael Goff as the Duke of Montrose. 
Now, Disney had enjoyed success with its first live-action film, Treasure Island, shot in England. He followed it up with two more costume adventure tales, the story of Robin Hood and his Merry Men and The Sword and the Rose, both directed by Ken Anakin and starring Richard Todd. In November 1952, Disney announced Todd would star in a film about Rob Roy, and Glynis John's casting was announced in March 1953. Walt was considering making a film about King Arthur afterwards, and Todd's fee was £15,000. When Anakin's home studio, J. Arthur Rank, decided to loan, um, refused to loan Ken Anakin out to Disney again, Anakin reluctantly had to go along with Rank's decision and ended his preparation for the film. Disney chose Harold French, who had worked with Anakin on some Somerset Mom Portmanteau films, to direct the film. So filming began on Rob Roy just as The Sword and the Rose was released. So now Richard Todd related in his autobiography that the extras, the film extras, were soldiers of the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders who had just returned home from the Korean War. Todd said as well as providing thrilling battle scenes for the viewers, the soldiers used the opportunity to enthusiastically get back at their non-commissioned officers. The soldiers only received their normal pay. Todd also admitted that his first scene leading a charge led to an injury when he stepped in a rabbit hole. In the New York Times, Bosley Crowther described Rob Roy as a fine lot of fighting among the hills, shooting of rifles, banging of claymores, skirling of pipes, and buzzing of burrs, filmed and recorded in color on the actual Scottish countryside. And while Mr. Todd is not precisely the Rob Roy that history records, he is indeed a satisfactory fabrication until a better Rob Roy comes along. Now, during a royal performance of the film in London for the Queen, director Harold French explained to Her Majesty, It's a Western in kilts, Your Majesty. Disney later admitted that the box office returns of this and The Sword in the Rose were not up to expectations in the United States, but they performed better in other countries. However, Walt Disney decided to pull back on making costume pictures and suspended operations in England. I'm very excited for this one. So I feel like it's going to be right up my alley. I think you'll enjoy it. It's, it's, um, I, I liked it too. Again, it's one of those long, um, long stories, but I, it's so different, you know, from anything else that Disney had done. Um, and, and it's, you know, just adventure and swashbuckling and a lot of hubris and all that. There's love story. I mean, it's everything. It, it, it's well done. It's, I, it's dark and gloomy because it's on the Scottish moors. Yeah, you know? I like the sound of that. <laughs> yeah. I know what I'll be drinking during it, too. Oh, what's that? A Rob Roy. Oh, very good. <laughs> yeah. Boy, you're, you're going to get your morning off to a kick. <laughs> I will. Uh, unfortunately for me, I will still currently be in Italy when this is airing. So uh, I, I will be in one of the uh, I'll, I'll be one of the people who has to watch it on the DVR later. Unless it's airing mm-hmm. in, in Venice. And in that case, sign me up again. <laughs> Watch all these in Italian. That's right. Maybe they'll have English subtitles. <laughs> so. so as the sun rises over the moors, the Disney vault is locked up for another season. 
And hopefully we will get a summer season. I, I have a feeling we will. So it's not usually too long after after the the latest one airs that uh, we can start looking at the TCM calendar to start picking apart when they might do it again. So uh, at most, it's only been like maybe a month after one block has aired before we, we can find it out. So... Uh, we should know pretty soon on whether or not it's going to continue on, and here's hoping it does. And I, I am actually, I would like another, another themed one around somewhere around the Fourth of July and showcase oh, more of the patriotic films. So, because I really like the block when they had uh, Johnny Tremaine and Ben and Me and mm-hmm. a lot of those classic ones. I I know there's more that they could dig into for sure. Oh, most definitely. So. Well, if you miss any of these films on March 29th or your DVR is too full to record all of these, many are available on home video, uh, Movies Anywhere that was formerly um, Disney Movies Anywhere, and even YouTube. So after you watch these, let me and Craig know your thoughts about these films and shorts on the Connecting with Walt Twitter page, at Connecting Walt. And, you know, make a party of this, you know, um, for your friends, have them come over, watch. When, before you watch the film, play the segment of Connecting with Walt that talks about the film, you know, to get them all yeah. set for it, then watch the film, you know, put your DVR on pause and then play the, you know, go to the bathroom, play the next segment of Connecting with Walt and then watch the film. And, you know, you can have your own little, you know, um, at the movies, you know, yeah. with Michael and Craig. And just yeah. remember that popcorn. That's right. <laughs> Full circle. Full circle. That's right. We'll see you next time in the balcony. Well, now it is time for this day in Disney history quiz for the week of February 25th. And those of you who have been listening to Connecting with Walt for 2018 know that this day in Disney history quiz is when we look at What's been going on this week in the world of Disney, whether it's the theme parks, the studio, animated films, or who knows what, the life of Walt Disney, in sort of a fun way that you at home can play along. Just don't Google. And uh, our rules are really simple. You get three points if you don't hear the multiple choice answers. Two points if I have to give our contestants the multiple choice answers. One point if I take away an incorrect answer or if one of our contestants answers the question incorrectly, the other contestant can grab the answer and answer it correctly for one point. This week... Not only do we have our returning champion, of course, and my my co-host, Craig Williams. No, thank you. You're welcome. We also have direct from her recent engagement on the the Diz Unplugged podcast Disneyland uh, edition, my colleague, Mary Jo Mulatto-Willie. Mary Jo, welcome to Connecting with Walt. Yay! Got my Mickey Mouse ears on. I'm ready to go. Oh, you are. You are ready for action. I can tell. So, anyway, so and and I know Mary Jo. You know your trivia. 
So uh, we hope so. If I don't, <laughs> well, there's no embarrassing on this show, right? It's all for fun. It's all for fun. So now, Mary Jo, you heard the rules. So do you have any questions? Um, no, not a, not yet. Mm, Kidoki, and actually, let me get out our first question here. All right. So, Mary Jo, would you like to um? answer the first question or would you like to hand it over to Craig I think I'm going to for the first one I'm going to hand it over to Craig since he's he is the expert and I want to just see how an expert answer does the does on this game alrighty okay Craig are you ready I I guess so <laughs> okay so for February Thanks, Craig for February 25th this 1979 Disney film was nominated for two Academy Awards on February 25th, 1980. Okay. Um, okay, I'll do multiple choice. Okay. Is it A, the educational short subject, Understanding Alcohol Use and Abuse? B, Unidentified Flying Oddball. C. Popeye, which was a co-production with Paramount Studio. Or D. The Black Hole. Oh, um... You know what? Even though it is mostly just a cult classic, I could see it winning some technical stuff. Uh, or being nominated for some technical stuff at the Oscars, so I'll go Black Hole. You are correct. The answer is D. This 1979 Disney sci-fi epic, The Black Hole, was nominated for two Academy Awards, Best Cinematography and Best Effects and Visual Effects. It will be edged out, though, by the film Alien. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's just a little bit of a difference in quality between the two movies. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. So, okay, Craig, you have two points. So, Mary Jo, this is your chance to pull ahead here. On February 26th, this Walt Disney World attraction closed permanently on February 26, 2006. Two thousand and six. I'm gonna. S okay, so I'm thinking, two thousand and six. What movies? I I'm gonna. Th no, think it's it an was attraction. Alien Encounter. Okay. Alien Encounter. Is that your final answer? Let me think. Yes. That is incorrect. Dang it. So. Should have gone for multiple choice. <laughs> okay, Craig, you can grab one point here, and I can give you the multiple choice. Okay. Um, it's A, the Sword in the Stone show in the Magic Kingdom's Fantasyland. B, the Timekeeper in the Magic Kingdom's Tomorrowland. C, who wants to be a millionaire play it at the Disney MGM Studios. Or D, Cinderella-bration at the Magic Kingdom. Um. Well, I want to say Cinderella Bration. I don't think it stuck around much longer after Disneyland was done celebrating their 50th. So is that your final answer? Yeah. 
Okay, that is incorrect. This oh. is sort of a trick question. The answer is B, the timekeeper permanently closed, although it hasn't operated since late 2005. Yeah. See, I, I thought it felt like it was it closed a lot longer mm-hmm. before, but cool. Yeah. All righty. Okay, so it's back to you, Craig. This is for February 27th. This Olympic athlete skipped the closing ceremonies of the 1994 Winter Olympics to begin a multi-million dollar endorsement deal with Walt Disney World. Oh, jeez Louise. Um, <laughs> well, I'm, I can honestly say I know it's not Tanya Harding, but I'll go multiple <laughs> choice. Okay. Is it A, Oksana Bayul, B, Scott Hamilton, C, Nancy Kerrigan, or D, Brian Boitano? Um, hmm. I, I genuinely still don't know, but I'll, I'll take a guess on Scott Hamilton. That is incorrect. Uh, okay, ooh. Mary Jo, you can steal. Is it A, Oksana Bayul, C, Nancy Kerrigan, or D, Brian Boitano? I think I'm going to go with D, Brian Boitano. That is incorrect. It's C, Nancy Kerrigan. Wait, do I get a second one? No. <laughs> Nancy Kerrigan. She skipped the closing ceremonies of the Winter Olympics in Lillehammer. But this was also partly due to security concerns. Um, so she can begin her multi-million dollar endorsement deal with Walt Disney World. She appeared in a parade at Walt Disney World. And unfortunately, she was uh, recorded by many guests on their video cams as saying... Was she's riding in the car with Mickey Mouse? This is the cheesiest thing I have ever done. That oh my god! No that sort of ended her um, <laughs> endorsement deal. We never really saw her in much of anything else after that. Oh, that's why. Like, I just—I mean, I know Scott Hamilton. You still see him on TV and stuff. So I figured, well, he would make a great personality. But dang, Nancy's he dumb. was—he would have been my first choice too. Yeah. So anyway. They, they were more at the 80s Olympics. So so, anyway. so Tanya Harding should have been kind of like a giveaway, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, I should have went with it. I was, I was on that same spectrum. You, you were. Uh, okay, Mary Jo, this one's for you. Um, February, this is for February 28th. The Walt Disney Studio is award. This Walt Disney Studio production is awarded a Golden Globe on February 28th, 1957. I'm going to go with multiple choice. Okay. Is it A, Davy Crockett and the River Pirates? B, The Mickey Mouse Club? C, Disneyland USA, which appeared on both television and in cinemas? Or D, The Great Locomotive Chase? 1957. I'm going to go with Davy Crockett. Is that your final answer? Yes, sir. That's incorrect. Okay, Craig, would you like to steal it? Is it B, the Mickey Mouse Club, C, Disneyland USA, or D, the Great Locomotive Chase? Uh, well, it's, it's tough because, like Mary Jo, my mind was on Davy Crockett. 
Uh, I, hmm. I, since it's just one point, I, I would say maybe Disneyland USA because I know that People in Places series was kind of a big deal, so I feel like maybe it could win something. Yeah, but. Well, it could have, but not this one. It was <laughs> the the television series Mickey Mouse Club is the Golden Globe winner for best TV show. Huh. Wow. I, why isn't it promoted like that, then? It should still be the Golden Globe winning Mickey Mouse Club. <laughs> it should be. I, I agree. So, okay. This is probably one of our lowest scoring um, sessions so far. That's what I was <laughs> really thinking. really stumped you guys. Okay. okay. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Craig, this is back to you now. March 1st. Which train locomotive has at one time been assigned to both the Disneyland Railroad and the Walt Disney World Railroad? Uh, Multiple choice. Is it A, the number one, Walter E. Disney? B, number two, Lily Bell? C, number three, Roger E. Brogy? Or D, the number five, Ward Kimball? Uh, I'll go with Ward Kimball. You are correct. Very good. The number five locomotive, the Ward Kimball, was named for the Disney legend and animator, and it was dedicated at the Magic Kingdom of Walt Disney World on March 1st, 1997. And I know, Mary Jo, what you're thinking. <laughs> now, in 1995, the Southern California Railroad enthusiast Bill Norrid traded his 1927 Davenport locomotive to Disneyland in exchange for the five retired Retlaw One coaches. The locomotive, though, was sent to Walt Disney World after it was discovered to be too large to operate on the Disneyland Railroad, and it was dedicated as the number five Ward Kimball. But unfortunately, they discovered the locomotive was too small for the Walt Disney World Railroad, so it was put on display at Epcot Center and was later returned to the Walt Disney World Engine House. In 1999, it was traded to Cedar Point for a smaller Forney locomotive, and after Disney restored it, it became the Disneyland Railroad Number no. 5 Ward Kimball in 2005. That's such a cool story yeah, about that locomotive. Yeah, yeah. So it's actually a Ward Kimball has been in three Disney parks. So, very cool. Okay, so now it's four to zero. So Mary Jo, I can feel this is your comeback. Okay, I, I I'm bombing so badly, but <laughs> this is a tough okay, one. So, okay, so now for March second, um, this film wins the Academy Award at the 86th Academy Awards on March second, 2014. It is the Walt Disney Company's first win in this category. This is March second, twenty fourteen. Oh, I I need to um, multiple choice, please. Okay, is it A. Get a horse, best animated short film. B. Saving Mr. Banks for best original score. C. Frozen for best animated feature film. Or D. The Lone Ranger, best makeup and hairstyling. Oh my gosh. I'm going to have to go with The Lone Ranger for the best 
makeup because I can't see Disney not winning any of the animated features or best score with all the wonderful music that they have. But keep in mind, this was the first win in this category. So unfortunately, that is incorrect. Seriously? <laughs> yes. So, um, Craig, do you want to steal? I'm on the street. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll steal. And I'm just trying to put, uh, for me, it's coming down between, I, I don't remember, get a horse winning. But uh, I know that the best animated wasn't always around. I think it w- it started in uh, 2001 or so, and that's when Disney wasn't really making great movies for a while, and Pixar was winning a lot. So, um, I'll, I'll just go with Frozen. You are absolutely right. Frozen wins Best Animated Feature at the 86th Academy Awards. It is the first win for the 91-year-old Walt Disney Animation Studios in the 13-year-old Feature Animation category. Let It Go from Frozen wins Best Achievement in Music, written for motion pictures and original song. So, Anyway, so very good. So you get a point there. So it is, you have five so far. What is it, five to zero? <laughs> five, five to zero. So Mary Jo, you're in second place. Yay, second out of two. <laughs> okay, and Craig, here you go. Just blow but her I'm out learning, of the water But I'm learning, so I'm happy here. to do this. <laughs> okay, March 3rd, Craig. This annual Disneyland event debuted on March 3rd, 1957. Uh, multiple choice. Okay. A, the Disneyland Pancake Races. B, Disneyland Resort Canoe Races. C, Fantasyland Rubber Duck Derby. Or D, Disneyland After Hours Cast Member Appreciation Party. Uh, well, I guess I will go with the... Uh after hours cast party because I've never heard of the other three. Okay. All right. And that's your final answer. Yeah. You are incorrect. Okay, Mary Jo, here is your chance to get a point so you're not shut out. This annual Disneyland event debuted on March 3rd, 1957. Is it A, Disneyland pancake races? B, Disneyland Resort Canoe Races, or C, Fantasyland Rubber Duck Derby? I'm going to have to do, I'm going to go with the canoe races. Okay, final answer? It is. It is incorrect. Is that my chance to, is that, is that my, cha- <laughs> my chance to, uh, to change to the rubber ducky? <laughs> you know what? You're still incorrect. You're not going to believe this. The oh answer my gosh. is A, the Disneyland pancake? pancake races. This featured I have... real housewives dressed in skirts and aprons 
flipping their flapjacks as they raced down Main Street, USA. This was Disneyland's version of this English tradition. Contestants qualified in several cities throughout the United States, and it was cooked up as a publicity stunt for the park, and it was served over several days. And it was in conjunction with the Aunt Jemima Pancake House. In fact, Aunt Jemima gave out the awards. Um, the winner of these finals would compete in the Nationals, and this race was held until 1964 in the park. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that amazing? I didn't even know that people did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm just dumbfounded. I was going for the canoes. That was my other one. So. Well, I know that they do the canoe races, so that's why I went with that. Oh. But I'm just having this image of these women because they, in those days, they used to go to Disneyland in high heels and skirts, right? Mm -hmm. Flipping these pancakes running down Main Street. <laughs> There's photos <laughs> online of this. So, um, anyway, yeah, it's oh great. Yeah, yeah. And there is a rubber duck derby. It started in Fantasyland, but it's now throughout the resort. And I forget what it's for. If it's for Children's Hospital or Make a Wish, it's for it's for a charity like that. And um, yeah, every, everything else. All of these are real events. So, wow. Um, anyway, and anyway, so Craig, you are you are medalist here. You are uh, you came out five um, points to Mary Jo zero. So Mary Jo, you have to defend your honor. So we will we will have you back next week. If you agree. I'll be ready. <laughs> okay, great. So that that's it. So at home, did you do better? <laughs> How did you score uh, this week? I think <laughs> so. probably 95 did better than me, I, I bet. I don't know. This is a tough one this week. So that's it for this, this day in the Disney History Quiz. I used some very good books as references for this episode, Walt Disney and Live Action, the Disney Studios Live Action Features of the 1950s and 60s by John G. West, the Disney Films by Leonard Maltin, Walt Disney Silly Symphonies, a companion to the classic cartoon series by Russell Merritt and J.B. Kaufman. There are also some good websites I checked out, the Disney Films, uh, which is www.thedisneyfilms.com, and the Disney Wiki, and um, also the American Film Institute at AFI.com had some um, information on a few of these films. So Excellent. Craig will have links to all those in our show notes. As always. Mm -hmm. So Craig, where can our listeners connect with you until next time on the Diz Unplugged? I will be all all the normal places. So uh, on the Tuesday show, the Walt Disney World edition of the Diz Unplugged, as well as the Universal edition of the Diz Unplugged, uh, the Diz Daily Fix, random vlogs here and there and everywhere, and as always on Twitter at Teleclaster. So and then you can follow me on Instagram too. I'm starting to pick that up again more and posting more photos. It's I go through lulls with it though, where I'm like, eh. People really need to see my face. Do they need to see what I'm looking at? And most of the time I decide no, but right now I'm in that kind of mood. So you can find me there. But what about you, Michael? 
Well, you can send me messages, um, Michael, at wdwinfo.com. That's the best place to send me messages. Uh, Twitter, though, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. That's the one with the Connecting with Walt banner. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. And I already mentioned you can connect with me and Craig um, on our Connecting with Walt um, Twitter page or Twitter account at Connecting Walt. Also, if you'll be at the Walt Disney Family Museum on, uh, I think it's Saturday, March 3rd, I will be there with, um, for a talk on Peter Ellenshaw. So if you're there, be sure to say hello. I might even have a Connecting with Walt button for you. Um, if you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at www.disunplug.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. And thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy.